0: good afternoon everyone it's nice to have so many here Wow I'm Doug Fullington and uh, this is the opening program of our 50th anniversary season so yeah, a lot to be excited about Peter Bowles programmed a season of revivals and new works uh, mixed bills and full-length works today we have a triple bill Two revivals and one brand new work, so I'm excited to talk to you about those. Very happy to uh, have you ask questions at any time. If I don't see you, holler, flag me down, and I'll leave some time at the end as well. A little housekeeping to start, and that is we have a new format for the casting inserts, which if you've looked at it, you may see. um, We've started to consolidate the information, so inserts will have two or three programs represented. So today's insert has casting for last night and today. So when you look at each ballet, you'll want to look at the second set of casting for each one, and that'll be uh, headed by uh, Sunday 10-2. Sun 10-2 in bold Mm -hmm. parenthesis. And uh, I'll point that out as we go along. Our first ballet today is uh, a George Balanchine work Balanchine uh Balanchine lived from 1904 to 1983. He was a very prolific choreographer who really is credited for uh, uh, really furthering classical ballet in the United States. He founded the New York City Ballet in 1948. Uh, All of our directors at PMB were one-time members of New York City Ballet so we uh, are part of that lineage and have that that's history there we have more than 50 works by Balanchine in the repertory he is the best represented choreographer but this particular work Allegro Brillante, we haven't performed for nearly 40 years and you might say why is, is it not as good as the others it's really not the case um, i'll get to why but let's talk about the ballet first Balanchine choreographed it in 1956 for New York City Ballet, which was pretty early in its history. And it is uh, choreographed for 10 dancers. There's a lead couple and then four ensemble couples, which essentially function like solo couples. Everybody in this short work has a lot to dance and a lot of really uh, vigorous, exciting dancing to do. The music is Tchaikovsky's third piano concerto. It's just a single movement and it clocks in I think we clock in somewhere 14 minutes and some seconds, if you will. Balanchine famously said about this ballet, it contains everything I know about classical ballet in 13 minutes, (laughs) which is a great quote. 13 minutes is really fast if you take them literally, but uh, we're close to that. Um, Tchaikovsky's Third Piano Concerto, if you look it up, say if you Google it, you'll probably read it was part of a failed symphony is not very complimentary, uh, but I think what was happening was Tchaikovsky was putting together the different movements of a symphony and just wasn't happy with how it was turning out. So he dealt with each of the sections separately, and this particular one with the tempo marking, Allegro brillante, fast and brilliant, became a concert work for piano and orchestra. Most piano concertos from the late 19th century will have three long movements and come in at a half an hour or longer. So this is just one of those movements, which is our 13, 14 minutes, if you will. But it's everything you'd expect from Tchaikovsky. Has the beautiful soaring melodies, it's loud and, and has a lot of percussion, and he sort of makes all that happen very quickly and Balanchine in his usual, very musical way has responded with choreography that I think matches the sweep of the music and the sort of rhythmic impetus of the music. I know the dancers really enjoy performing it. Uh, it came into our repertory really early here at PNB in 1977, I believe, and we performed it a lot. We were a smaller company then, and uh, Kent Stoll and Francie Russell, who came to us in 1977, were uh, putting together programs to help build uh, the technical level of the company and the stage experience of the company. So this was a great work and I think we performed it a lot. We did a lot of regional tours in those days and it was on a lot of those programs. It doesn't have a big set, the costumes can kind of go in a two-gallon Ziploc. Um, (laughs) It's easy to take it around. Now, of course, we have the luxury of our own orchestra, piano soloist, and and we can do it on the big stage here. It has been on Peter Bowles' repertory list for a while, but because it doesn't quite last as long as you Most works on a triple bill would. I think it would tend to sort of fall off. The seasons would work themselves out, but it made it for the 50th anniversary season. And in fact, Peter is our stager for this ballet. And by stager, I mean, he's the one who teaches each role to all the dancers, and he's responsible for the ballet. The look of the ballet, the tempo, everything about it, as a representative of of the George Balanchine Trust, which oversees the uh, performance and dissemination of works of Balanchine. So uh, that's a great sort of dual role that Peter's fulfilling for us, as well as being artistic director and programming the piece in the first place. Uh, we have three casts, three lead casts for Lake Berlante today. You'll see uh, Sarah Gabrielle Ryan with Kyle Davis. The other casts are L. Macy with James Kirby Rogers and Angelica Generosa and Jonathan Batista. And I think Virtually the entire corps de ballet has cycled through the ensemble roles as well as some of the soloists in the company. So even though it's a small cast, it's essentially been a full company work. And uh, dancers are always excited to perform balancing works, especially work that they may be less familiar with. After Allegro Brillante today we have a pause. So that's where it's important to look at the right date here because last night there was an intermission. That's because the first two ballets shared some dancers, and they, uh, they needed a brief intermission just to get the costume changed and catch their breath. But today, we'll just have a several-minute pause after Allegro uh, before going on to our second work, which is our new work, which is titled Wartime Elegy, choreographed by Alexei Ratmansky, and it does refer to the war in Ukraine. Um, you you may be aware Alexei Romansky is, is one of the high, highest regarded, uh, most highly regarded choreographers working in classical dance today. Uh, his father is Ukrainian, and his parents live in Kyiv, and his wife's family all live in Ukraine. So you can imagine it's been a, a very fraught year for them, a lot of uh, anxiety uh, about the situation in Ukraine. So Alexei was born, however, in St. Petersburg, Russia, grew up in Kiev, and then uh, took his ballet training at the Bolshoi Ballet School in Moscow. Now, they didn't take him into the company when he graduated, so he went back to Ukraine and danced there. Then he came over to the west, he danced at Royal Winnipeg Ballet in Canada, and then moved to Copenhagen, where he became a principal at the Royal Danish Ballet. So he's had a very cosmopolitan uh, career. Uh, and was also developing concurrently a choreographic career during that time. And then the Bolshoi Ballet in Moscow invited him to be artistic director there, which he was for several years in the early aughts. And then in 2009, he moved to New York and joined American Ballet Theater in a role that they call Artist in Residence. And he's been there since uh, 2009 and and lives in Manhattan, but choreographs uh, around the world we, uh, we have three other works by Alexei in the repertory. We have his, uh, it's a great staging of the 19th century classic Don Quixote, and then we have two works made for New York City Ballet, pictures at an exhibition set to the famous Mazorsky score, and then a piece called Concerto DSCH, which is one of the Shostakovich piano concertos. And as we've been building this relationship as a company with Alexei by acquiring his existing works, we, we call those acquisitions if it's, a, if it's a dance that already exists, and then we got to a point where Peter asked Alexei to create a work specifically for us, and that's often how these relationships with choreographers go. We will acquire some works, build that relationship, perform. Um, perform the works to the choreographer's satisfaction and then get to a point where we can ask for work made for us. So wartime elegy does have to do with the war in Ukraine, but it's been planned for some years. Uh, Not the specifics of the piece, but the fact that Alexei would create a work for us. This must go back to 2017 or 2018. He's very busy, so his schedule is is, uh, filled uh, years out. But it so happened that uh, the commission was planned for uh, this fall, and it was the first work that Alexei has made since the war began. So he knew that he wanted to use the work of Ukrainian artists as part of this ballet. Uh, In particular, the music of Valentin Silvestrov. Silvestrov is one of the foremost Ukrainian composers. He turned 85 yesterday. Uh, He, lived in Ukraine, but he was able to uh, leave Ukraine when the war began. He is now in Berlin. And the particular set of pieces that Alexei was looking at are titled Four postludes. Lutes. They're for uh, solo, piano, and strings. And a postlude is a piece that comes after, so it's going to be sort of commenting on or uh, reflecting on, if you will. And, and these pieces are very reflective. They're quite uh, soft. They're quite sober. They have uh, melancholy, I think, in, in the melodies. Uh, they're very beautiful. But when Alexei had all four next to each other and thought about choreographing to all four of these, which clock in at about 17 minutes or so, he felt that the, uh, the feel of the ballet would be too static. So he chose the first and the fourth of the postlude. So the ballet opens with the first, and then comes back to the contemplative feeling with the fourth postlude at the end. But in the middle, uh, instead of the Silvestrov, he's put in uh, recordings from the 1930s of Ukrainian folk music that he had. Uh, So these vintage recordings, I believe he said, they were recorded by a Ukrainian slash Canadian band, and he said, they sound really interesting, but they're, they're very clearly folk music, they're very celebratory. And I, it, I think it was very important to him that he not only reflect on the current situation, but also show the, uh, the joy of the uh, Ukrainian culture and the energy of the people and the perseverance. And so we have this wonderful arc in this piece of opening with uh, uh, something slow and more somber and then moving to something so joyous and then almost having the two uh, sort of collide with each other, if you will, as we come to the end. Uh, the costume designer is a fairly recent collaborator with Alexei, his name is Moritz Junga, and he has designed costumes as you might expect him pretty sober colors for the opening of the piece, sort of diaphanous flowing costumes for the women and costumes that are more form-fitting, like unitards for the men. But then they change for the folk dance sections and don't put on complete folk costumes, but elements that, that refer to them, flowered headdresses for the women and colored belts for the men with uh, short pants, white shirts. And then again, at the end, these sort of mix together The scenic design is a set of projections uh, that Alexei worked on with Wendell Harrington. Wendell is a wonderful theatrical projection designer. They've collaborated on several works. And for the projections, they've used the work of two uh, Ukrainian artists. And I just want to make sure that I get the names right here. I'm at the glasses stage with reading. So they come on and off. For the opening and closing, we will see artwork that is designed by Matve Weisberg. Uh, Weisberg is a contemporary artist. He has an interest in <coughs> classical work, so you'll see that his art, uh, the art that's been chosen, is a little bit almost like a deconstruction of, of classical uh, sculpture, if you will. And, and as an aside, antiquity and classical art is a, is a real side interest of Alexei's. So we see this at the beginning and the end, but in the middle, we see the work of the folk artist, uh, Maria Primachenko. And that will be projected very, very large scale on the screen with bright colors during the, these uh, celebratory folk dances. Uh, and just one more thing here, before both of the folk dances uh, on the recording, there's some spoken words. Some spoken words before the first dance, which is for the men, and before the second dance is for the women. And Alexei did kind of a rough translation that is in the casting insert. It's just below the title, uh, wartime elegy in parenthesis. So before the men's dance uh, is said, uh, Hey guys, play it like our glorious Dovbush used to celebrate, play. And Dovbush refers to Alexa Dovbush, who was an 18th century Ukrainian folk hero. Then, before the women's dance, I don't get the inflection right at all. It's really good on the recording. Uh, but the voice says, uh, Hey, musicians, play a fast polka. Girls, get ready and join hands. Oh, mommy. <laughs> so, it's, it's just great. So, and you can see also in the program here that Alexa has dedicated wartime elegy to the people of Ukraine. I think the dancers have had a, just a, uh, an extremely memorable time working with Alexei, not only because of his status as a choreographer, and he works beautifully with dancers in the studio, but to work with him at a very momentous time in which they were creating a, a piece of art that comments so directly on a, on a current situation that we're all seeing and that many people are living through. Um, he came to us in August and made the work in 15 days. And then he, uh, he was traveling with his wife, uh, Tatiana, then they went to London where they were working with a group, uh, which calls itself the United Ukrainian Ballet, a group of displaced Ukrainian dancers that have been given uh, housing and uh, funding to uh, present performances as, as benefit performances, and Alexei's staging of the 19th century ballet Giselle was performed in London and before that in The Hague. And then they came back to us last week for our tech week, we call it, where we come into the theater and get all the ballets on stage and really bring them up to the performance level that you'll see today. So that's Wartime Elegy. It lasts about as long as I talked about it, which is about (laughs) 18 minutes. And uh, then we have a a proper intermission of 25 minutes, because there's a lot that has to happen behind the curtain to get Carmina ready. Uh, How many have seen Carmina Burana here at PMB? Okay, a lot of you, not all of you. The music, of course, it is, is a, an established concert work, a very famous piece. Karl Orff composed it in the mid-1930s. It premiered in Frankfurt in 1937. And really, after the Second World War, it gained a lot of momentum as a concert piece. It's a great closer to uh, program for a symphony because it uses the whole... The whole band, it uses the, your symphony chorus, their vocal soloists, soprano, tenor, and baritone. It comes in at just over an hour. It's a big, substantial work, and it's quite accessible, too. Melody's always accessible. It's got really strong rhythms. Uh, even if you don't know the piece by name, probably when it starts, you'll say, oh, it's that piece, because it's a real part of pop culture as well. It's used in commercials and in films, and there's a lot of film music that is very uh, closely inspired by Carmen Burana. Still a very, very influential work. So coming up on 100 years uh, since it's been written. Uh, the piece is important to Pacific Northwest Ballet, too. Kent Stoll uh, picked it in 1993 to open the season. And it's hard to believe that that was nearly 30 years ago. But the importance of that is that earlier that year we had moved in next door to the phelps center before that pmb had been at the good shepherd center in wallingford which was a great place but we had outgrown it years before we were able to move so uh, the company was able to uh, run a capital campaign and raise the funds to develop the top part of the exhibition hall next door and develop it into seven studios a building that could house the company and the school together, include a costume shop, a box office, and all kinds of things uh, that we hadn't had yet. So it was very exciting, but Kent and Francia were really clear that while it was thrilling to have that building, the whole point of having it was to uh, elevate what we were doing over here. And uh, so the season that followed that move included Carmina Burana, which was new. It closed with Cinderella, which was new. It included a lot of um, new work simply to make that point that we, were, that we were closer to the theater and that we were working in a better space and it was going to positively affect what we put on stage. Carmina's been in the repertory. If you've been coming any time, you'll know every few years. Um, we are going to hear today the Pacific Lutheran University Choral Union, which is essentially the PLU Alumni Chorus. I think this is their third time singing Carmina Burana for us. They are elevated over the stage, literally in a uh, balcony, which is suspended from the rafters. Uh, so the dancers are very much sandwiched in by the music, the choirs above them, the orchestras below them, and the vocal soloists are on stage with them in costume. And while Carmina is, is a staple of the concert hall, uh, Orff did envision it as a fully staged work. I don't know all the details of what he envisioned, but I'm sure it involved uh, designs and very possibly dance, and that is what we have today. Uh, Kent collaborated with a favorite scenic designer of his, Ming Cho Lee. Uh, Ming was very much an architectural designer rather than a painted drop designer. And uh, all of the ballets that he made for us have big architectural pieces. And this one has the huge Wheel of Fortune in the middle of the stage, which actually moves when the curtain goes up. And I think the, our scenic shop is presented with that drawing. And uh, <laughs> we're very puzzled at first how that was going to turn into something three-dimensional, but they worked it out, and, and you'll see it today. A little bit about the text of Carmina Burana, and we do have a link on our website to the text, to the translations that you can find, but it is a setting of 24 poems, medieval poems, that are believed to have been written by uh, monks. These were, I believe, initially collected and published, though not until the 19th century. Uh, Karl Orff took 24 of those and arranged them in such a way that the opening and closing address fortune, the empress of the world. That's what we mean by fortuna imperatrix mundi, at the beginning and the end. And then the other poems really discuss the human condition in all all its glory, so to speak. The elevated and the less elevated. And we have three main sections. The first, uh, primavera, deals with the spring and that sort of yearly rebirth of life and nature that we all experience. The second is in Taberna or in the tavern, which has all kinds of sort of debauchery and is the less elevated part of the human condition. And then the court amour section or court of love is the more elevated. And in the medieval period, a court of love was was an event that would be organized at which poetry would be read and music would be played and it was a celebration of intellect and a celebration of expression. So, within Carmina Burana, we have all of these things addressed, but finally at the end, uh, we come back to that Wheel of Fortune, and everyone who's on stage represents these different uh, sort of aspects of humanity that we've just looked at in greater detail and realize are sort of, they make up a part of each of us, I think, is the, is the intention of that final tableau we see in Carmina Burana. Um. I also wanted to mention that we've had some promotions, and I believe you're going to see everyone who was promoted on stage today. Three promotions to Principal were made and announced last week, Wednesday, at our First Look Gala. Um, Cecilia Ailisi was promoted to Principal. Uh, You will see her today in Wartime Elegy and in the Taberna scene in Carmina Burana. And she'll be Peter Bowles' guest down here afterwards for the Meet the Artist. Session, if you don't know about that, for about mm, 20 to 30 minutes down here, immediately following the performance, you're welcome to come and chat about the show with Peter Bowl and a guest. So today, that's Cecilia. It's also a great way to let the garage clear out, and it's smooth sailing down to I-5. It's always a plus. Um, James Kirby Rogers has also been promoted to principal. He is in Wartime Elegy today, and Jonathan Batista. Also, who is dancing uh, the lead in the corps de morse section today with Elizabeth Murphy? So you'll see all three of those artists on stage today. And finally, one more promotion: um, Keon Ross, who many of you may know as Keon Gaines because that was his name, uh, stage name, while he was in the company, has been appointed associate artistic director of the company, which is just so sort of thrilling. Yeah, we're all so excited. Keon has spent his entire career, I remember when he came to us, uh, he danced in the corps de ballet, then became a soloist. When he retired, he joined the faculty of the school. He also took over the administration of our Next Step Choreographic Workshop, which is a yearly program in which the company makes new works on the professional division students. Then Keon transitioned over to become our director of company operations on the management side, which is essentially company manager combined with tour manager. So He's really, he's kind of done it all here, and he really understands how the the organization works artistically and administratively. And I think he's just uh, so well positioned and such a great person to take on. That role to work alongside Peter in making long-term plans for the company, programming, casting, teaching, working with the dancers. We're all really excited to see Keon move into this role. There's a really nice piece in the program written by Teresa Ruth Howard about Keon that you can read to find out a little bit more about him and about that. So lots to celebrate, and I'd be happy to uh, answer any questions you might have. We have a few minutes. Yes, sir. Um, I'm coming in a for us that have seen it before here, any magical changes that you've done maybe that we might not remember? Yes, yes. Um, Any changes to Carmina Burana? I don't think uh, anything visible from the last time. There have been a lot of security updates and sort of re-licensing of all the things that make the, the production work safely. So that's sort of been the focus this time around. So things that uh, fortunately you won't see, (laughs) so that it all runs really smoothly. But choreographically, I think the same as the last time we did it. Thanks. Uh, Yes? So um, the PLU choral union, I know that they would rehearse separately from the dancers and then come together during tech week. Mm. What would be sort of like an average rehearsal period for the choir? That's a great question. What would the average rehearsal period be for uh, the PLU choral union? Um, I can't speak to that exactly. I know they, as you said, they would rehearse in Tacoma before coming up here. And I know our conductors, Emil and Josh, went down and had a rehearsal with them in their own space. Um, if there's not too much turnover in the choir, and most of them have sung Carmina before, that means it's all going to come, come together much, much faster than if someone were learning it for the first time. So I, I bet they didn't have too many rehearsals before they were ready to come. Uh, they would do two rehearsals here, uh, the dress rehearsal and then one before the dress rehearsal. The vocal soloists, however, would come in a little earlier than that since they have some, some movements, some physical movements to, to do with the dancers. So they'd be in at least the week before next door at the Phelps Center. To bring that together but we really benefit of course from, from the choir knowing the piece and uh, sort of knowing the way that we do it and I think that helps it come together pretty quickly and pretty smoothly that's my guess yeah uh, sure the, um, the quote from Alexi in wartime Elegy about Do Bush yes he was an 18th century. What did he- Uh, I said uh, Alexa Dovbush was a Ukrainian folk hero, and I believe he lived from 1700 to 1745. Didn't know who he was until I saw this, and I Googled it. Folk hero, that's a nice description. Folk hero is a nice description. Sometimes those descriptions get added way after the fact. But uh, that's to explain the reference in that, that opening statement, Before the Men's Dance. Sure. Anybody else with a question? No? Okay. Well, we've got about half hour until curtain. And just want to remind you, you're welcome to join for Meet the artists with Peter Bowl and Cecilia you after the show. Uh, and finally, just to say, I'm so glad you're all here. It's great. It's thrilling for the dancers, as you know, to be back on stage and performing. Same for the orchestra. and that We can all experience to- this together. So please enjoy the performance. Thank you. Thank you.